Amen. Very good. Very good. Well, thank you so much, music team, for pointing us to Christ this morning. <clears throat> this last song is actually an original song that uh, Pastor David wrote uh, a few years ago, and it's based off the five solas of the Reformation, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, scripture alone, and to the glory of God alone. And he wrote that as a reflection on those five solas, and I so much appreciate uh, that, appreciate that work, and pointing us to Christ in a very biblical and helpful way this morning. We have run the full range, as Nathan said a little while ago, just in our music. We like music that's really chock full of content that helps us to think biblically and to reflect rightly on who God is, on who we are. And so we've been able to do that this morning. And now we turn our attention to God's word and we're gonna be in Luke chapter five this morning. Luke chapter five. And you may have noticed in the bulletin that I said we're going chapter five verses 33 through chapter six and verse 11. And if you had seen that beforehand, you probably would have known that's ambitious. And you probably also, if you've been with us a little while, would have known he's not actually going to do that. And you would have been correct if you had thought that. We're coming back to the Gospel of Luke, and we will look at verses 33 through 39. Today, I have a tendency to, um, earlier in my prep, think that I'm going to make it farther than I'm actually going to make it. Um, Those of you who have opportunities to teach, you know how that goes very well. So this morning, we're back in the Gospel of Luke. We took a little bit of a break. Our pattern here at Sunrise is to teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And over the years, uh, January will mark my 11th year here at Sunrise. We've studied a number of different books, Exodus, Hebrews, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, about a little over half the Psalms now, the Gospel of John, Colossians, Deuteronomy, First and Second Thessalonians. We've been in the Old Testament, been in the New Testament. And so our study this week brings us back to the Gospel of Luke. We took a little bit of a break this summer to look at Psalms. We do that each and every summer. And then we took a few weeks and had a little mini-series on the idea of worldview, looking at sort of the big picture, the big scope of the Bible. And I'm so glad to be back in a text here with you. So we are in the Gospel of Luke, and this will be familiar territory. For many of you, if it's not, that's okay. We'll get everybody caught up as we walk through the Gospel of Luke this morning. We have four Gospel accounts, four Gospel accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called, here's your theological word for the day, the, it's actually a simple one, the synoptic Gospels. Synoptic, and it's just a word that means same or similar Gospels. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very similar in their approach and very similar in their content. And they're basically telling us two things at the end of the day. It boils down really to two things. The man, Jesus Christ, who was he? The person and then the work of Jesus Christ. So, or we could say it, his mission and his message. Who was Jesus Christ? And the entirety of the New Testament, of course, is built around the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. The New Testament is about the Messiah who came in the Gospels and then everything else falls out of that. Who was Jesus? What did he do? And so that's where we find ourselves here this morning. We've journeyed with Luke. He's a historian. He's very careful. He's given us the birth narratives. We began this study actually last January, or I'm sorry, last February, uh, December. I'll get it in a minute. I kept going the wrong way. My calendar was moving forward and I was trying to go back, but for some reason my forward button got stuck there for a second. We've all been there. 
Last December, we started with the birth narratives, and we looked at the narratives about the birth of John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. His mama didn't name him John the Baptist. She named him John. We call him John the Baptist, the Baptizer, to distinguish him from John the Evangelist, the Gospel writer, John. And so John the Baptizer, we are told the story of his birth, and we're told the story of Christ's birth, and these two sort of intermingle. Luke goes back and forth telling us about these two very important birth narratives, and then he begins telling us about the ministry of Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves here today. We're in the midst of a series of stories, and it's been since last May since we were in this, so I'll take just a moment and review where we are. So Jesus is being presented as one who has absolute and complete authority. And Luke is wanting to show his authority over different realms, if you will. And so we have this miraculous catch of fish in Luke chapter five, where Jesus tells the disciples, put your nets over there and you'll bring in a great haul. And it works. It's an amazing story. He's showing and demonstrating his power over nature. Then we have the healing, the reaction to that. Peter says, I'm a sinful man. Um, and so that's why he's interacting with this idea of sin as he shows his power over nature. They're struck with the reality that Jesus is different. He's different from anybody else that's alive. We see the healing of the leper and then the paralytic man. And then we see the calling of Levi or also called Matthew. And we're gonna deal with that one a little bit more today. And then next week, the next two weeks most likely, we'll talk about the Sabbath, uh, Jesus' interaction with the Sabbath. And so that's where we are. This story is the calling of Levi. And so I've titled this this morning, we have a story about Levi, and Levi is called to follow Jesus. He's a tax collector, and he's not considered a, a good guy by the Pharisees, and they get mad because Levi, immediately after he's called to follow Jesus, he throws a big party. Sinners, Levi's friends come, they hang out with Jesus, and the Pharisees get really mad. And then the question is asked, why aren't your disciples fasting? This isn't real spirituality. There's something wrong with your disciples. And so they get really mad. Well, with that as the overview, you'll understand my title better. We have the feasting, the fasting, and the furious. The <laughs> Those at the end, the furious, because they aren't fasting like they think they should be. What I wanna do here at the beginning is I'm gonna I'm gonna do a multi-purpose intro here. As most of you know, I had an opportunity to go visit some of our missionaries, Josh and Abby Ratton, this past summer, and had the opportunity to take uh, my daughter Kate along with me. And I'm gonna use this as an intro, one, because I haven't told you a lot about that trip, so I wanna tell you a little bit about the trip. And then two, I was really impressed as I reflected back on some of my, just some of the things that we learned in Uganda, even as I was keeping a journal uh, throughout my time away in Uganda, how much of the time and thought we talked about food in Uganda. Interesting, not a lesson that I expected to really learn. Now, being a big kid from the South, that's encouraging because I do like to eat, and we had some great food in Uganda. So, as I said, Kate and I had the opportunity to go, and I'll let you guess whose traveler matches which bag um, there. 
So we did go visit uh, Josh and Abby, and this is their family there, Gracie, Moses, Anna, Noah, Oteem, and Jojo, little Jojo. Uh, he's a trip. And so this is us uh, visiting with them. This is a Sunday morning just before we go and worship, and then uh, we had an opportunity to go visit the ministry house that they're in the process of building, which is the, the construction um, there on the other side. One of the things that I was really struck with as far as it relates to eating and food is just what an ordeal a meal is. So there was a particular day that they had one of uh, their English instructor came over and they were in Kampala. They've actually moved to a village area um, now. Uh, they were in temporary housing in Kampala. And Kate and her friend Anna had an opportunity. Uh, they were learning how to cook an authentic uh, Ugandan meal. And this is really kind of a day-long thing. And so they went out to the market, they walked down to the market, they bought all the supplies, and they came back and they made matoke, with a fish sauce, along with rice and liver and homemade juice. Sounds fantastic, right? It was actually, was actually fantastic. Some of you are into that. Um, it was actually really good. But it was amazing how long of an ordeal this whole thing was. Um, it was, it was quite a process. Um, you didn't just go through you know, Wendy's on the way home. Um, it wasn't like that. And so a meal was, was really a significant thing. And what we come to learn and what we came to learn through some of our other interactions, as I said, I was surprised by the number of times that we talked about food and talked about sort of the customs around eating and what it means to share your table with somebody. And that's gonna become really relevant here in just a moment as we look at the story in Jesus' day. There was another day where we went over to Pastor Paul's house and we went start to finish with a, a sheep here, all right? I'll just let you use your imagination um, as to what happened. So it, I know this is, you know, they're not born in little white packages at Publix, just, just so you know, all right? The whole process was right there. So it was, a again, a day-long process. It was the whole thing. We, they slaughtered a sheep that morning. The sheep was cleaned. Uh, we made the spices and the sauces. I spent a fair amount of time with one of those big, look like a butter churn kind of, kind of idea, this big, forget what they call it, urn type of thing where you take the mallet and you grind it together and then you put it over the meat. Uh, we spent the entire, I mean, it was the entire day where we're cooking and working and ultimately having this meal and they invite people over and then that later that afternoon, evening, everybody comes together and you, and you feast and it's a big deal for everybody to come together and to eat. It's amazing. Talking to Abby, she said, uh, Josh's wife, Abby, she said one of the real difficulties in Uganda is that you, she, she said, as far as cooking and meal planning and things like that, you never know how many people are going to show up. So she said, you'll just cook a meal and then all of a sudden there's two or three families that just show up and you got to have food to feed them. And so she said, it's just a real challenge uh, to be able to, to be hospitable in that culture. Another conversation I had with a brother over there, he said, he was telling us that in that culture, you don't ask someone if they want to eat. If you have food, you serve it and they eat it. And so he said, if you ask someone, would you like to eat something? What that really means is I don't want you to eat with me if you ask the question. And I'm like, huh, interesting. 
Like, and so they're, we're Americans, they know that, and they're kind. And then the Rattans told us a story of they went to visit um, some friends, and they went to visit an area that they used to live in. And she said six different houses they went to back to back to back, and they all cooked the same meal. And Abby's like, keep eating, kids, just keep eating. Because you, you show up and you just, you just pound it, you eat. And so they did. Um, you know, take one for the team. So it was, it, was, it was a lot of that kind of thing. Just when I thought that I'd kind of learned everything about eating in Uganda, this was, uh, this was fun. I just like that picture of Kate pumping water uh, there in the, in the village. And that's us on the Nile River, which is pretty, uh, was pretty awesome. But the bottom picture here, there's our guide here. And uh, we were in another place. And one of the things that we learned as well is that there's a ton of variety in Uganda uh, as, as far as the different people and different customs. And so this guy was from an area. And he said, he was telling us over dinner, Ironically, when I tell you the story, he was telling us that in their culture, you don't talk while you're eating, all right? It's rude. It's considered rude. So everybody sits around in a circle, and you eat, and then you visit. So, you know, to share a meal together and talk, that's rude. You wouldn't do that. Now, he was gracious to us, and he knows we're Americans, and we're peppering him with questions while he's trying to eat his food. Um, and he was, he was very kind, and we, we laughed. We had a good laugh about that, and he was very good-natured about it. But it was really interesting, um, and it was so diverse and so fascinating what was going on. I think that whole experience, and I come back to this story here of Jesus interacting and, and going over to a meal with the Pharisees. You guys may not think much about that. I may not think much about that. But when you get something of the culture and something of the distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century, to go and have a meal, share a meal, this was a huge issue. And the Pharisees end up being furious because they don't appreciate that Jesus is partying with the sinners. You can't do that. Aren't you supposed to be a holy man? Aren't you supposed to be a teacher? You're a rabbi. You can't do that. You can't go hang out with them. And so it was very, very offensive to them. Many scholars actually believe that the Jews and Gentiles hardly ever shared a meal together. One, because it was seen as a sign to share a meal was sort of a consummating of a friendship, um, an alliance, and they were the enemies in many people's minds. And then the other reason is they ate a kosher diet. And so there were, there were regulations about the utensils that could be used and not mixing certain food products and draining blood properly from the meat before you serve it and these types of things. And so it was really unusual then for the Jews and the Gentiles to even share a meal together. This is a big deal. It's huge in the culture. Tim Chester said it this way, doing lunch was doing theology. Kind of interesting statement. To do lunch was to do theology. We don't necessarily think of it in that way. Josh said he learned this the hard way in one area after they had first moved to Uganda. They've been there 13 years now, so he's very aware of the culture and where he is. And he would try, he said he initially tried to set up lunch meetings with people. Like, hey, can we have lunch and talk about, and he was in an area where they didn't, you didn't talk over lunch. And so that's not compatible. That's not going to work. Uh, for us, that's a really natural time, especially in the course of a work day. You know, you might grab lunch with somebody, just a time for everybody to take a break and catch up and eat. That's not how it worked. So with all that, let's jump into the text 
And let's back up to the calling of Levi because that's the context for our passage today. And then let's see what we can learn about fasting and feasting. So this is Luke 5 and verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So here's our context. Levi's been called. He immediately throws a party. He invites his friends over who happen to also be tax collectors. And these people were synonymous with being dishonest. They would be sort of like toll booth operators of sorts on a Roman road. And you had a certain amount of money you had to turn in to the Roman government. And whatever you could skim off the top of that, whatever you could charge was yours to keep. And so they were known for being dishonest. They were known for overcharging people. And so if you wanted to really talk bad about somebody, you could call them a tax collector. You're like a tax collector. And this was their reputation. And so then Jesus goes over and he joins the party. Levi, interesting, first thing he does after he meets Jesus is, let's have a party. I want my friends to meet you. And the Pharisees and the, ta- and the scribes are looking on saying, what are you doing? How could you form an alliance with those people? And Jesus cuts to the heart of this and says, you don't need me because you're not sick. You don't think you have a problem. Hardest thing in the world to do sometimes is convince people that they actually have a problem, right? We'll see that again in our text today. So verse 33, that's the context. Verse 33, and they said to him, the disciples of John, they fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear it, he'll tear it from the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Now what in the world is going on here? We're gonna look at this and there's basically a question and an answer and that's how we'll look at it today. Why aren't you fasting? Maybe more specifically, why aren't your disciples fasting? And Jesus' answer is, it's not time to fast yet. So let's get into it. When we talk about fasting, as I come to a sermon about fasting, and we're sneaking up on 11 o'clock here, and my guess is some people's stomachs are starting to recognize the hour that it's getting close to lunchtime. I know mine certainly is. And you think, oh no, he's going to talk about fasting and we got plans after this for a feast. Well, let me, let me uh, assuage those concerns. We're actually, 
I'm, I'm gonna encourage you to feast actually today. So I hope that you will and I hope that you will enjoy. But first we need to talk about fasting. What do we mean? What are we talking about? Typically speaking, this is what we're meaning. A spiritual discipline during which traditionally a person abstains from food for a period of time. All right, so typically that's what we mean when we say the word fast. Now you can fast from something, right? People will do that sometimes. I'm gonna take a social media fast. We'll hear that one thrown around a little bit today. I recommend it, but that's not exactly the spiritual discipline being in view uh, here. Some people may fast for a meal. Typically, when people fast, it's for a day, but that's not always exactly the case either. So typically, it just means that somebody for a set amount of time is choosing to abstain from food. So what does the Bible actually have to say about fasting? And where did the Pharisees get their ideas about fasting? We'll look at that. So there's different reasons that people would fast in the Old Testament and then also in the New. Number one, we could say there is a religious or even we could say liturgical reason why people would fast. Liturgical just means a part of a ritual that you would, that you would follow. There's only one required fast in the Bible, only one, um, and that's this one here, the Day of Atonement. It says this, now on the 10th day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Now it's interesting, it's translated afflict yourself, but what it's talking about is to fast. And those of you who have enacted some sort of fast before, you would probably agree, this is much like afflicting myself. And so that's why it's called that. You're making yourself uncomfortable. Now here's the kicker with this situation, at least at the Day of Atonement, they were supposed to offer a food offering while fasting, all right? So you go try that. I'm starving and I'm gonna bake some brownies and then I'm gonna offer them to the Lord and I'm not gonna eat them, all right? So there was a, like an extra layer of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cook something. I'm gonna offer this sweet smelling food to the Lord, but I'm abstaining from it. That was the fast on the day of atonement. So that's one reason why people would fast. We see that in Acts, sure seems like they are maintaining that fast. In 27, in verse nine, it's called the fast. We won't look at all of these scriptures, I'm just giving you a sampling. And I know some of you like to have uh, these uh, slides, and if you're, you're welcome to take a picture, I'll smile for you if you hold up your phone long enough and I see you. I know you really want me in your picture, right? That's why you're actually taking it. Um, or I'm always glad to send these, so just send me an email. I'm glad to send you anything that I have um, that would be helpful for you. So there's a, there's a religious reason, uh, liturgical reason why people would fast. Next, we see, and these are voluntary. Um, all the rest of these are a voluntary fast, something that you would choose to do on your own, maybe for a season, maybe in a group, um, but it's, it's voluntary. It's meaning it's not biblically required uh, to fast. So there's... There's times when we see a brokenness. Uh, there's mourning and repentance. And this is, this is gonna become important just here in a moment because the Pharisees, they had locked into a very specific understanding of what repentance looked like. So when Jesus calls Levi and Levi becomes a disciple, he has exactly the opposite response that he should have had. 
If he was really repentant, you know what he would do? He would be sitting in sackcloth and ashes and he would be fasting. What is that guy doing throwing a party? That's not real repentance. That's not what it looks like. And they had pulled some of this rightly from the Old Testament. So we see Daniel, he, uh, he's in mourning and he's lamenting and he's crying out for God's direction. We'll see that, these categories cross over a little bit. Uh, in Daniel 9, Daniel 10, this is a sampling. There's many more. Uh, it's a sign of repentance. We see that in Joel and then also in Jonah after Jonah goes and preaches in Nineveh and the city, they go into a season of fasting and mourning over their sin. And so a sign of repentance, Joel says this, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. There's a genuine brokenness over sin that was required. And so this is what fasting looked like in their understanding and view. Okay, so religious reason, there's a reason of brokenness, mourning, repentance. There's another reason why people might fast in the Bible. This isn't completely exhaustive, there's a lot more to say, but I think grabbing the main points at least. There's sometimes a, a spiritual longing, and I think this is the one that probably connects most with the types of fasts that we see, especially like in a corporate setting or maybe a church, you, you may hear, uh, we're gonna call a fast for a day, we're gonna fast and pray for some sort of thing. This is more similar typically to what we see. So in Esther, for example, you remember Esther is being called on to go and to speak to the king. That was a dangerous proposition in order to save the people. I love this verse here, Esther 4.14. For if you keep silent at this time, this is speaking to Esther, Mordecai is speaking to Esther, relief and deliverance will rise up from, uh, for the Jews from another place. But if you and your fathers, but you and your father's house will perish, and who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. It's a fantastic verse. I think sometimes we have a little bit of an elevated sense of our self-importance, don't we? We could have said, well, if Esther doesn't speak, nobody's going to speak, and the, they're all going to die. Like, well, Mordecai's perspective was, you should do this. You really should, but if you don't, the Lord has another plan. The, Lord, the Lord's gonna get his work done. So don't, don't elevate yourself and think, if I don't do this, it's never gonna get done. That may or may not be the case. So Esther responds, go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she's calling on them to fast and pray. So there's this sense of spiritual longing. We get a few other places where this happens. The early church, this is when they send out Paul and Barnabas on mission journeys in Acts 13 and 14. We get a sense of preparation for Jesus. This is right before the temptation where Jesus fasts and he goes out to be tempted by Satan. And then we see Anna anticipating the Messiah. It says that she was always at the temple, fasting and praying, longing, waiting. And so there's this sense of spiritual longing, anticipation, direction from the Lord that people are seeking. So why would people fast? There's 
A few different reasons here then. There's the religious reason, which is only one commandment, Day of Atonement. There's the idea of mourning or repentance, brokenness, spiritual longing. And then there's one more, and this one is not a good one. Self-righteousness is another reason that people choose to fast. Self-righteousness. Isaiah 58, four through six. Isaiah 58, four, it says this. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. So you think you're getting somewhere by your fasts, but you're actually not because your life is out of conformity with the revealed, clear law of God. What's the answer? It's not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke. God says, I'd rather have your obedience than you skipping lunch. That's what I really want, showing compassion for people. So why do people fast? We see another story. The Pharisees, I'll read this one for you. Matthew 6 and verse 16. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. That's Matthew 6, 16. They've received their reward. Uh, They're done. They got everything they're gonna get out of this. It's worthless, in other words. Don't fast like them. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And then Luke 18. This is the story of the Pharisee and the poor man, the, the tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Now just imagine the audacity of that prayer. God, I thank you I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, are even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. You see, they're fasting. They're abstaining from food, but it was of no value because it was complete self-righteousness. Complete self-righteousness is all this is. So let's summarize a few things. What do we learn about fasting from this passage and from the teaching of the Bible on the whole? What can we gain from this? One, just to understand, fasting is never commanded in the New Testament. I use the word commanded. It's never commanded. There is no verse of scripture where you point to and say, you must fast because of this verse. It's not there. The only command you have is the Old Testament with Day of Atonement. Next, Jesus indicates that fasting is sometimes appropriate. So, Matthew 6, where he says, when you fast, there seems to be an assumption that you would do this, but he's not prescribing it for all generations in a specific time and place and way. But there's an expectation that you would do this. And then, in our verse that we're looking at here today, then you will fast in those days. So they're not fasting now, but there will come a day after the, resur- after the crucifixion, rather, where fasting will be appropriate again. The next point I would make on this is 
I think you know when to fast. I don't wanna get too subjective and internal with this. You guys that know me well enough to know um, nobody's snatched and invaded my body at this point. I am, it's me, hi, I'm really speaking. But I think you know, I think there's something inside of you and we know when we have a, a sense of mourning, a sense of loss, maybe after you've lost a loved one and you lose your appetite and it's appropriate in those times to, to fast, to push back and just to think, to pray, and to, and to reflect on God, on loss, on his kindness, on his goodness. It's appropriate. And then my last admonition on this would be don't fast like the hypocrites. Um, if you're choosing, you choose for a season, if you choose to fast, let's say on Friday, I would just encourage you, let's don't make this a hashtag you know, social media event. Um, hey, fasting everybody, how do I look? You know, let's take a selfie. I think that's exactly what Jesus was saying, don't do. Um, so your father who sees in secret, he'll, he'll reward you in secret as well. This is not a public consumption deal. Now, I understand there may be times and places where a church or a group of people, you choose to do this in community together. I'm not saying that. I am saying, though, you need to look closely at your heart when you're involved in this and when you choose this discipline. So let's move back into our text here this morning. So the Pharisees are fasting and they are upset that Jesus and his group are not fasting. So verse 33, they said to him, the disciples of John, they fast often, probably in anticipation of the Messiah or spiritual direction as we've already seen. They offer prayers and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Now this is likely, the question's likely actually being asked at the dinner party and by the dinner guests. So these other tax collectors are looking around and they're thinking, I thought to be a spiritual person, you had to live in this particular way. Kind of this dour, sad, like you're, you're constantly afflicting yourself. I thought you had to live in this way, but you know, you guys seem to be having a great time following Jesus. What is this all about? And so that's probably the nature of the question here. And I would just say that if, uh, if you've only been around people who are dour and sad and you think that is what true spirituality looks like, it's not. There's so much joy in following Christ. Everywhere I go around here, every group that I'm a part of is just full of joy and happiness. We have our staff meetings. We laugh a lot. We talk about serious things. We do serious things. Our elder meetings, our home groups. We, we enjoy being forgiven. We enjoy, you don't have to, don't feel guilty because you're not miserable all the time. It's okay. It's okay to enjoy being forgiven. And so, Jesus is just showing them a completely different way to be his follower. So his answer then, the, questions, the question is straightforward. Why aren't you fasting? Jesus, his answer is it's not time yet. As he plays this out, he gives four pictures here. Four pictures. One, the bridegroom. The bridegroom. So the analogy isn't complex here. You don't show up to a wedding wearing all black and offering condolences to everyone. You might, as a joke to one of your friends, 
happens. It's not the point of the wedding, though. You're, you're out of step with what the party is all about there. It's a celebration. And Jesus is saying, fast? The Messiah's here. How could you fast right now? This is a party. You need to join the party. This is great. Don't fast at the feast. Next, a patch. He gives a few illustrations here. And the point of these is, is clear in the big picture. There's some details that we could dive into here. The point is clear enough. He says in verse 35, uh, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away and then they will fast in those days. As I mentioned, I believe this is after the crucifixion. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on the old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. So he says if you, if you need a patch, if you're wearing your jeans and you need a patch and you have the, a new patch that you sew onto this, it's going to shrink over time. Well, the old has already done its thing, and so it's going to create a tear um, eventually if you have a new and an old garment that are put together because one's going to change size and the other isn't going to want to change size because it's already changed and so that's his point. There's a dissonance between the old and the new. Obviously, he's the new thing that's come, and the old isn't matching anymore. And the point is clear enough to the Pharisees. Or it's like a wineskin. You don't put new wine in an old wineskin. Same concept. So the wineskin, this was sort of like the bottle of the ancient world, all right? You know, prior to Dasani and glass bottles and cans and things like that. So they would take a, an animal, oftentimes a goat, and they would take the neck because it kind of had a natural funnel and after, the, after it was skinned and they would sew together that part which kind of made a natural place to, to create like a valve. And the wine skin was, when it's new, it could expand. And so you put new wine in, it ferments and you know, the gases expand and the wine skin can expand with it. Well, once you get an old wineskin that's already done its expansion, if you fill it up now with new wine, it's gonna burst it because it's already expanded to its max. And that's the analogy that he uses. I think for some of us driveway mechanics, those little, uh, those little like body connectors, all the little plastic pieces on cars, it's kind of like that. The ones that sit out in the sun for a while and you try to pop them off and then try to pop them back on, it never works, never works right, at least not for me. It's old, it's not, you can't keep putting, taking this in and out and wineskins don't last forever. What's the main point? The main point is that there's a new batch of wine that's come and you have this group of people that say, we've never done it that way. We've never done that around here. Like, well, get used to it because Jesus is gonna try them on this. I mentioned this morning in equipping hour that one of the cross-references that we would look at is this story. It's after Lazarus is resurrected. Some people believe that if I could just see a miracle, if I could just see a thing that God did, then I would believe. Like, well, look at the Pharisees' reaction after Lazarus is raised from the dead. We can't let him do this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. You can't have everybody believing in Jesus. No way that'll work. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. The issue was political more so than it was theological. So as we come to the end of this, I'll give you a few questions that I want you to just think about. 
Maybe these can serve as small group discussion as well, or maybe just personal reflection. So some questions for the road. Do we have a tendency maybe to set up artificial boundaries and paint a picture of what true spirituality looks like that doesn't actually match the Bible? Well, to be a truly religious spiritual person, you have to dress in a particular way, you have to use a certain set of vocabulary. Is it artificial or is it biblical? It's worth thinking about. Do we have unbiblical metrics for repentance? This is an artist's depiction of the tax collector and the Pharisee. The Pharisee self-righteously says, you know, I'm really glad I'm not like him. But you know what we do? We look at the Pharisee and we go, I'm really glad I'm not like him, right? How many of you thought that when you heard that prayer? Oh God, I'm, not, I'm glad I'm not like this man. Now, I wouldn't call myself the greatest prayer in the world, but I've never prayed like that. It's like, well, I'll do better than that, at least. We're doing the same thing. I'm glad I'm not like that guy. Careful. Unbiblical metrics for repentance. You have to look like me. You have to do it like me. You have to say it like me. And then lastly, these Pharisees, they couldn't enjoy the joy of following the Messiah because they were so locked in and tied in to an old system. And so the question that we could think about is anything stealing our joy of being forgiven? If we're not in a frame of mind this morning to enjoy and to rejoice at the forgiveness that we share and enjoy because of Christ, why not? Why can't we get there? And let me just be quick to add, I understand there's seasons of brokenness, there's seasons of mourning, there's things that happen. I get all that. We've talked about that a lot in the Psalms, so you can cross-reference any of those. I understand that. But on the whole, as we look at our lives, we should be able to wake up and smile because we're forgiven and we're followers of Jesus. It's good news. If you don't feel that, if you don't recognize that, if that's not part of how you think, I would just ask the question, why? Is it sin and temptation? Is it some sort of loss? Like, what is it that's keeping us from enjoying what it means to be a follower of Jesus? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here together today. We thank you for your word, and what a powerful story where we see Jesus, he cuts across all these social rules, and he just calls people to follow him. And so, Lord, help us not to build some sort of structure of what spirituality looks like based on the way people, maybe a certain set of vocabulary or a certain set, or even a certain look or clothing or whatever it is, a certain manner about us that isn't biblical, that it doesn't match. Lord, we pray that we would be not like the Pharisees in this story, but that we would be like Levi, who's just rejoicing and so glad to find Jesus, and in reality, for Jesus to find him. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be like that this morning. Use your word. Show us our need for Christ. We continue to pray in Christ's name. Amen.